I wanted to talk tonight about how we actually get emuna. Um, we've spent the past couple of weeks talking about the two different kinds of emuna. There's a more simple, more rudimentary emuna. It's a mitzvah that the Rambam says to believe in God, to not believe in other gods, to not entertain the, the non-existence of God. It's a very kind of fixed mitzvah that is, it's almost accomplishable. You could, you could accomplish it. It's one of the thirteen. You can accomplish it. And then there's another realm of emuna that extends to everything, as the Gemara says, the goal of all the mitzvot is to achieve emunah living with constant emuna. It's like the farmer who's always, who always recognizes that the agriculture works, even though it's a miracle. That's a kind of a very advanced level of emuna as well. And everything that goes in between, kind of what separates this and that, is all of Torah and all of Jewish life. And uh, the Pasa tells us that when when Moshe and Aaron, Moshe and Aaron, were being reprimanded by God because of striking the rock instead of talking to it, the Torah says, Ya'an lo bi. Moshe and Aaron, you don't you don't believe in me, says the Almighty. Now, how is it possible to say that Moshe and Aaron don't have a Muna? If they don't have a Muna, we for sure don't have a Muna, right? What it means is, is that the other realm of Amuna, the expansive, pervasive realm of Amuna that covers everything, that there's no end game to it. Unless you're God himself, which we cannot be, of course, unless you cannot possibly understand God completely. And therefore, even Moshe, who was the greatest man that ever lived, the Torah is telling us that even he had this Amuna was not complete because there is no completion. It's not possible to complete it. And that essentially means that the room for Amuna growth is unlimited because there's no way for us to ever get to the end of it. And that kind of, these two Amunas, this Amuna, believe in God, simple, right? It's kind of a cognitive idea. And then there's the other Amuna, which is to change who you are and to become a different entity and to feel Amuna in a reflexive way, in an instinctive way, to become like an angel, well, that's done through Torah. And that's kind of the process. And, you know, this week we read about the Ten Commandments. And the first is, I'm the Lord your God. Believe in, believe in God. And the last is, Thou shall not covet. Lo sachmo, don't, don't desire your neighbor's house, his car, his wife, his ox, his clothing. Don't desire what your neighbor has. Now, it's interesting. It doesn't tell you don't act upon the desire. It says, don't even desire. And the obvious question is, wait a minute. If I desire something, that's not my doing. I didn't choose to desire it. I desire it. I I, I choose whether to act upon it. But here, it seems like the Torah is telling us a mitzvah that doesn't seem like we could possibly fulfill it. We're being told, don't even desire it. Don't even covet what your neighbor has. How is that even possible? So the Ibn Ezra, the commentary, he says this point. He says that just like if, the example that I give, he doesn't say this, this is my example, I kind of updated the example. If you, does any one of us desire to grow wings and start squawking and flying like a bird? We don't even think about it, it's not not even within the realm of reality for us, right? You can desire a lot of things, but that's not something that you even desire because it's not even, it's not possible, right? It's, it's physiologically outside of the realm of what you can imagine yourself being. You don't think about like, when will I finally grow talons out of my arms? People don't think like that, right? Why? Because that's not within your reality. 
Says the Ibn Ezra, what the Torah is telling us, thou shalt not covet, that's the all the way to the other end of the Ten Commandments, right? And we said that the Ten Commandments, that's a condensed version of all of Torah. So beginning is the start, and the end is the end. And what's in the middle? Everything. All the 613. And that brings you not from, from a rudimentary amuna to a reflexive amuna. From a cognitive amuna, believe in God, to an amuna that actually permeates your existence. It changes your interaction with the world. And the result is, lo sachmod, you don't desire. Why don't I desire? Because of amuna. Why? Because I really believe that everything the Almighty does is calculated, and everything is part of a bigger plan, and the Almighty knows what I need, and gives me what I need to do, my tools to fulfill what I need to do. And the Almighty gives my neighbor what he needs, and with the tools that he has, uh, that he has necessary to fulfill his job. And why should I desire it any more than I desire something that's not, it means that's my reality. We know that the Sadiqim, the Gemara says, Sadiqim chavivim aleim amonim yosrim gufam. That Sadiqim, they desire their money more than their body. Sounds very strange. The Gemara says, Rashi breaks it down, that vayivaser yakrov levado. Jacob is stranded alone. Why is he alone? Because he left pachim tanim. He had small judges on the other side of the river that he had abandoned. And he went back to get them. Mikanomru, from here they say, this is what the Gemara says, that Sadikim, they love their money more than their life. Why would Yaakov, who was one of the richest people in the world, why would he love his money as a few jars? Who cares about a few jars? What this means is that a Tzaddik has a very distinct perspective on the world, and that is that the Almighty actually exists. And therefore, everything that I have, everything that I own, that's given to me by God for a purpose. And moreover, my body, what's my body? That is a tool that God gave me for my purpose. So I have my money and my body, they're the same. And therefore, even if it's a small jar, that who cares, it's a, it's a small jar, it's not worth so much money, still, it's the money gave it to me and I have to value it because it's part of, given to me for my purpose. And therefore, I cannot abandon it. That is the attitude of someone who has, who has the fully blown and developed emuna, and that person with that attitude won't desire what his neighbor has because I know that the mind gives me what I need and the mind gives my neighbor what he needs and that's not even within the realm of reality of what I could possibly ever even desire or think about desiring to obtain. So we see this progression, that there's this, the starting point of our growth in emuna is believe in God. And then the end point is don't covet, which is a manifestation of the full-blown amuna where it actually becomes, it changes who you are. I want to start today uh, with thinking about how do we acquire amuna, just the most basic levels of amuna, just the anoche shemolokecha amuna. And I think that there's, um, I think there's a, um, a miscalculation that people, that people have. Most people don't ever think about this question. Either because they're not interested, they're not stimulated by it, they're not intrigued by it, or because they're terrified by it. Uh, it's a scary proposition because it gets to some of you know the core aspects of who we are as Jews, and we don't want to tamper with it. And people tend to rely on what they feel, number one, 
and on what their family told them, number two. And that's why you don't really see so many people uh, who are who grew up one way to change. And if that's why, the same reason why, when a kid goes off the derech, because his father smacked him too many times, right? The kid abandons God because he's mad at his father. Well, what does that have to do with each other, right? Because the father essentially is that link that connects him culturally and societally to God. And therefore, the only reason why he believes in God is because his father told him. So if he hates his father now, so he hates everything the father represents. If his father represents God, then he abandons God when he abandons his father. That's the reason why, I always wonder, like if someone wants to go off the derech, right? They, they want to abandon Torah. Oh, fine, terrible, tragic, right? And frequently it goes, it goes, it's, it's a smack in the face to their parents, right? And they hate the parents, they hate the parents, rebelling against the parents, recalcitrant teenagers and adolescents. I am, I see most, uh, most cases of kids abandoning Torah as bad parenting. This is a separate discussion. But let's assume that that's correct. So, Bad parenting, but why do you have to abandon God? What does your parent have to do with God? The answer is, is that that's your only link. Most people, that's their only link. We're part of a community. We went to school. We have our parents and grandparents, and they teach us, and then we just accept and teach it to our children. And that's good, and that's important, that's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And I'll tell you why. What this means is, is that when someone has an emotional or societal faith, that means that their faith hinges upon that emotion or that society. That means that their faith is very fickle. It's not resolute. It's not strong. Because like we say, you, you, you would change your society, you change your faith. Well, how, well, is that what your faith is? It's not even strong enough to withstand the change of society? Right? And if you have a feeling, oh, I feel like this, oh, it's Duvaldic. You go to Tish... And you really see and you feel great and you really feel connected to God. But what happens when you don't go? Or when you're in a bad mood? If it's, if it's related to feelings, then it's very likely those feelings will change. And I think there's other parallels to this as well. People want to have strong marriages. So what do they base it on? They base it on love. That's a mistake. Because you may love your spouse now, but what happens if you get they, they get you upset and you start to hate them for a little bit? What happens then? If that is the basis of a marriage, it's very likely that that could come under duress. That, that could be under attack and under assault. How do we establish it on very firm foundations that it should be able to withstand the challenges and vicissitudes of life in our marriage and of life in our relationship to God? We're, we're kind of starting with a blank slate. And the blank slate, what we have to recognize is that there's a, a good way to do it and there's a better way to do it and there's the right way to do it. Uh, and I, I think just like with marriage, the Gemara tells us, Tov It's good for a man to take on a yoke when they're young. Says the Gemara, Isha. This is the yoke of marriage. This is the yoke of marriage. What Chazal are telling us is that the proper attitude that's going to ensure continuity, that's going to future-proof it, that's going to divorce-proof a marriage, is when there is responsibility. 
and there's commitment. And that is the basis of it. And of course, there's love that stems from that as well. But love is not the underpinning of the relationship because then it's very, it's on very shaky grounds and you get mad at your spouse, God forbid, and you don't love her and then what happens? The marriage could crumble. But to get through those times of challenges, provided that the foundations of the marriage is one of commitment and responsibility to each other, and when the bride surrounds the groom seven times, they're binding each other to each other through thick and thin, through chaos and upheaval and tension, that will ensure that during those times where things aren't amazing, they'll get through it and they'll withstand the challenge. Similarly with our emuna, we have to try to figure out a way that emuna is not dependent upon all the other externalities. It's not dependent on our parents, or our society, or whatever we feel, that it can withstand the challenges of life and the ups and downs of life. And that has to be done by ourselves. There has to be a process by which we, on ourselves, we ourselves acquire our faith. We do it, we cognitively approach. It means it makes, it's logical to us. Either we have a logical approach or some other approach, but the, but the point is that it's acquired. It's not inculcated. It's not, we're not just following the indoctrinations of our youth. Nothing wrong with the indoctrinations of our youth. But it's important for us to realize that that is not as strong as it must be. My grandfather used to say that, how do you know if someone's immune is strong? He says, imagine someone got kidnapped. They get kidnapped by a tribe or by a group, a society that derides and laughs and castigates and looks down upon anyone who believes in God. And you're in the tribe and you get there the first day, you're kidnapped and you go, you want to put on stone. And the whole place looks at you and starts laughing. And then you want to say, you, 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 time for breakfast? You want to make a bracha, make a blessing? The whole place points finger, what a, what a clown. And you have that for day after day, week after week, year after year. If your moon is really strong enough, you'll withstand it. If your moon is only societal, society changes, the moon changes. And that's very dangerous. And we know today, our kids are being put into a world that's so crazy. It's full of so much heresy. It's incredible. Like, you know, you people who are quote-unquote creationists are laughed at. So what are we going to do? How do we make sure that our, that our Amuna and their Amuna is strong and resolute? We're really taking their kids and putting them out in the storm. And we're saying, good luck trying to survive. We have to find a way to substantiate what we believe emotionally, culturally, and make that real that it can withstand all the tumult of the world that we find ourselves in. So I think it's important for us, even on the rudimentary emuna, to think about ways that we can acquire. Because once someone goes through a process on their own, it doesn't have to be 100% accurate, but it's a process that they achieved on their own that gives firmament to what they believe. Means if someone says, I'm not going to abandon what I, what I was taught, but I'm going to blaze my own path in, uh, in this, in this realm, 
once someone kind of takes a few steps on their own, they're much more secure because they know that they got to themselves. It wasn't like their parents told, what if your parents lied to you, right? Yeah, people always have these doubts. What if my rebbe lied to me? What if my society lied to me? What if my school lied to me? You know, who knows? There's so much indoctrination and how do we know that we're right? But if someone on their own takes a few steps and blazes a path for themselves to achieve a modicum of faith, then they're assured, or at least they're, uh, they can, uh, they can be more certain that their moon is more real and more protected from the challenges it's invariably going to face. So my grandfather wrote this book. It's actually two books here. Um, one of them is called Olam Hayididut, The World of Love, or The World of Camaraderie. And one is called Or Lashav, which means a light for the returner. It's interesting that both these books had different names when they were initially published. And the names kind of lost their meaning for different reasons. So he changed the names of both books, and now they're, they're sold as one. The original names of Olam was Ben Sheshet La'asor, between six and ten, which is a play in words. We say Ben Kisei La'asor, uh, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, is called between Kisei, between the throne, so to speak, of God, and Asar, the tenth day of, of Yom Kippur. That's kind of a, a high point of the Jewish year. So he made a play in it, Ben Sheshet La'asor, between the Sixth Day War and the Yom Kippur War. Because there was a tremendous resurgence and renaissance of Torah and tshuva and repentance during that time, because there were miracles. But the, but that that was the high point. Was, that was the beginning of the Israeli Kiruv movement, the tshuva movement. So my grandfather was a pioneer in the vanguard of this movement, and he would go and speak to soldiers, and he would go from kibbutz to kibbutz. These leftist communist kibbutzes that would eat pagan Yom Kippur, like that really existed in Israel. These ardent anti-religious people, they had their worldview shaken and they were willing to hear. My grandfather went from kibbutz to kibbutz and speaking to these people. And in the first, the first section is, is what he wrote during that time. The second said, the second book, much shorter book, was called Shalheves Yah, which is a word in there's a passage which says, shall have us, yeah, the flame of God. The problem is people didn't know, never, people, most people don't know it, and they would say, shall have a tia, whatever. People didn't know what the meaning is, but shall have us, yeah, means the flame of God. It's one word. And the flame of God is a reference to our soul. And the, the thrust of the, of the name was, is that we all, all Jews have the, the flicker, the flame of God within us, some of us, unfortunately, that flame is a dying ember. But so long as a Jew is alive, even though someone sins, they're still a Jew. And the uh, the level of the Jewish nation is that we have this fire within us. And sometimes there are cosmic events that make this flame be exposed and have a resurgence. So he wrote a book uh, where... Uh, he starts where essentially it's it's a, the, what's dramatic about this book is its brevity. It's written, it's like every sentence is two words. It's just bam, 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 and it's it's a very powerful overview of an introduction to Torah. And he starts off. The first section is called Maslule Emuna, paths to Emuna. And what he develops here is four different paths, just general ways someone could approach a moon on their own. 
And I think what he's suggesting here is that it doesn't really matter which one of these paths someone takes. Everyone can kind of choose for themselves which path is more appropriate for them, which one they, which one resonates with them more. Um, regardless of which path someone takes, what's important is that someone take whatever one, one path or two paths or all paths. That's also fine. But work on yourself in your own time to build a model for yourself that makes sense for you, but something that you achieve yourself, and that's will acquire faith on your own. And you mix that with the emotional, you mix the cognitive faith and the emotional faith, you mix the inculcated faith and the acquired faith, and those two together will help us go from the first of the Ten Commandments to the last, from the rudimentary amuna to the reflexive amuna. What are these four, what are these four categories? So the first one he says is the world, which means basically the world around us, what we would call today science or the wonders of creation. That is one realm. Uh, the next one is the Jewish people and the Jewish people's history and destiny and role in the world. And the third one is man himself on his own. And the last one is Torah. And looking at Torah and seeing how it all works, that can be used as a way uh, to build your own relationship with Emunah. And there may be other paths as well. But this is, I think, a good way to start because it's not... I'm not advocating that people, I don't think he's doing that either, not advocating that people choose these paths as paths that they're going to take for themselves, but these are the generalities and then everyone has to work on their own to say, which one of these am I going to take or which one makes sense to me to build a model that makes sense for myself that I could use to to make sure that my roots of Amuna are firm and deep and profound and resolute. The first one here, he gives a, he gives just kind of, these are, these are little snippets. Little as what, uh, these are what, uh, Wikipedia would call stubs. These are kind of just one line ideas that can really develop into a whole book or a series of books. But he's like this. We, we know science is pretty clear, uh, and the evidence is, a profound and expansive that the world has a beginning as opposed to what the Greeks believe that the world existed forever. In the 1960s, the idea of a big bang uh, became accepted by the scientists and the reason why they accepted that is they got this kind of echo, this feedback of an expanding world. They found the world was expanding. If the world's expanding, that means the world is dynamic. If the world's dynamic, it means there's a beginning and there's an end. Well, there's a little bit scared talking about the end. What this means for us is, is that the first word of the Torah, Bereshis, is now, after thousands of years, where this was ridiculed, you have Greek philosophy which rejects this principle. They say the world does not have a beginning. And that's why you see the Ramam responds, the first line of the Ramam responds, that there was, there was a beginning, and then the first word of the Torah, because the whole world didn't believe it, and now the whole world believes it. But what does it mean? If there is a beginning, there is a beginner. And that's an idea that we can work with and think about it and research and say, okay, there's a beginner, there's a beginning who started it. Also, there's order. 
The world makes sense. There is structure. And he gives a few examples. The fact that our world exists in the Goldilocks zone. The fact that it's just right. Goldilocks, that's where it comes from. The story where she only eats the soup what's just perfect. Our world is in a very small band of habitable conditions. Our world is placed around 93 million miles from the sun. If it was a little bit closer or a little bit further, the world would either be covered in ice or be too inhospitable. It would be all desert. We're kind of placed what's called the Goldilocks zone, just perfect, where there could be a world that flourishes. Now that's an interesting idea, but that's only one idea of, of how everything is so perfect. Everything is designed. Everything is engineered. You look at a single cell, I think if someone actually understands the mechanism of a single cell and how many different interacting, coexisting properties exist simultaneously and how complex it is in a single human cell, which is what we have, we have billions and billions and billions of, each one of them contains strands of DNA. Well, how big are these strands? These are strands that consist of around 3 billion protein pairs. And how small is the cell? It's, it's too imaginable to think how small it is. Yet, within each just part of the cell is the, is the strands of DNA and an, a, an interwoven double helix structure of 3 billion protein bases. Each, each protein base is comprised of all these different compounds. And all these are sending messages to each other. Everything's working. And that's only one part of the cell. And every, every single cell has that. Like, wow. Such order. Such precision. And that exists. And that's, that's fact. That's science to really help us with that. You see precision to such a degree. Who, who, who organized that? And that's an idea you should run with. There's a whole book written about that. You know, there's a famous Pasuk, we say, if someone looks at their body, they, that's alone they can learn about God. And that's even before they knew what the, how the body operated. Now we learn more and more about how it actually works, and it's fantastic, it's unbelievable. How a brain, just the energy efficiency of a brain, how much data is being stored in our brain and how efficient it is. I read that if... If Intel could find a way to be as efficient in processing data as our brains are. Storing data. Storing data, yes. As storing data as our brains are, you could fit all the big internet companies with petabytes upon petabytes upon petabytes of data that have these huge cities. These cities of data centers that each one of these data centers takes up as much energy as an entire metropolitan area. These data centers with that have enormous, enormous amounts of data, all that could be condensed to, to something that would weigh less than a kilo. If they could figure out a way to make systems that could keep that amount of data with that efficiency. We all have that in our, in, in our brains. We have that. That's just mind-blowing. And there's so many examples of that. Just recently, they had a study um, that greatly altered the estimated amount of distinct species on this planet. 
And it's interesting. I always think about, you know, when uh, Darwin wrote his book in 1858, just what they knew about biology versus what they know today. It's striking, I think, uh, when recently they came up with a study that uh, the number of, how many distinct species are there in the world? Different organisms, huh? Then or now. Well, how much do we think? So we used to think, we have no idea, the truth is we have no idea. That's the, uh, that's the real truth. But the estimation, what they, they, what they did is they took samples of ocean water, of salt water, and they took, let's say, a meter by meter of salt water, and they looked at it under a microscope. And you take a, under a microscope, you find these tiny little organisms and you find within every meter of ocean water, you find millions and millions and millions of different organisms. Independent organisms of each other. They're all reproduced of their kind. And the number that they estimated previously was in the millions. And now they're revising not to the, not, not to the millions, not to the tens of millions, not to the billions, but to the trillions. And you think about that. If you don't believe in God, you're slowly being handcuffed because you don't have so much time. Our world is only, what, 4.5 billion years old? It's a relatively new world. You have to find a way to get to me out of nothing, out of just matter. Get to the point where that matter comes from. But out of just matter and not even animate matter, how do you get in from inanimate matter to animate matter? How does that even work? We have no idea. How does that work unless there's a force and intelligence that does it? We think of a single-celled, ah, single-celled organism. Let's start with an amoeba, single-celled organism. You know what an amoeba is, a single-celled organism? You know how complex that is? But even if you do start with that, how are you creating billions and trillions of different species? How does that happen spontaneously without any overseer? I, 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 to me, it's, it's like that's checkmate. Anyone who rejects God. Yet, our society says that the creationists, you guys are the clowns, right? We're the most sophisticated ones. Ah, you believe the dogma. You believe in some God, right? But you tell me, how is it possible to get in four some odd billion years with matter? I'm, I'm giving you the matter for free. Where do you get the matter from? You know where they say they get the matter from? Stars exploded. And stars have within them helium and hydrogen. And helium and hydrogen, each one, like, they somehow mixed together and created carbon and phosphor and all these other stuff that are needed for life. How that happened, it's a great mystery, because to get from a helium to an oxygen, a lot of stuff have to happen. And we don't see that happening. But even if you have an oxygen, even if you have an oxygen and, and a, a, a compound, how are you getting from that to a protein, to an amino acid, to a single cell? I don't know. It's, it, to me, it's so strange. Yet we're the ones that are being called out for our to, uh, for our commitment to unprovable, so to speak, entities. It's strange. And now you have to get not to one of them, to billions, billions of them. And there's more mounting evidence as time progresses, and there's not enough time, right? Even if the world is 13.8 billion years old, the universe, let's assume that that's all true. I'm, I'm granting that. I'm granting that. And the world is 4.5 billion years old. I'm granting that. How is it possible to get to where we are today? I'm not questioning that. Let's assume that's all true. Where does it come from? It's, it's astonishingly improbable. It seems like it's a much worse option 
logically. But I'm saying these are these are ideas that we can think about and that they're very powerful because they help us to give us security in what we believe and to bolster what we believe and to embolden ourselves in our mood. These are just some examples that he brings. Uh, there's many examples, I think, in this realm. Um, I think that the most popular, I, I would say in common parlance, in, in, in Jewish parlance, people talk about faith, a lot of it is limited to looking at the world and building for themselves from the evidence, the certainty that the world had a creator. Like we've, like we've mentioned, that's not enough to get us to the full-fledged Amuna. That's a much more advanced question. Um, this seems like a much simpler thing to achieve. Like to get, to get to to believe that God exists, that's much easier than to actually change who you are and to recreate yourself in a way that you don't desire, uh, someone else's stuff. But this is, uh, this is one approach, uh, to do it. We look at Jewish history. You see remarkable events that happen to our nation that don't happen to any other nation. And you see the way we're treated. And you see the, the, what we had to encounter. And you see, and all these things, by the way, are foretold by the Torah. And everything is just following exactly the way a Torah had predicted. And that's striking. And it makes you wonder, like, how is it possible for us under these conditions to be small in number, to be persecuted, all told by the Torah, sent around from land to land and survive and thrive and take over the world, not as a nation, but our ideas. It's really amazing. And the Torah and the man, this was the most, this was my favorite part of, of his argument here. And I'll leave it to next week of how, uh, uh, next time, of how just from your own experiences yourself, you don't, you don't, you don't want to get involved in the science, you don't want to kind of research those things, you don't want to look at Torah, just you yourself, man on his own can internally achieve faith. But like we said, this is an acquired process. But the bottom line is we uh, should work on trying to build for ourselves a working model that is good enough for us to say that our immune is not just what we've accepted from our parents. It's not just what our society has told us. It's, it's something that is substantiated by our own pursuits of truth.